90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Just got back from a lot of traveling, so, you know, trying to play catch up as always. Right. <laughs> Me too. We have both been on the road and I will be on the road again very soon for yet another workshop. Yay. <laughs> yeah. So it has been a, a busy time of year, but it is conference season it along is. with pumpkin spice latte season. Oh, it was so wonderful. That just, wow, that was a great segue, John. We didn't pick this up or didn't plan that at all. Um, so I went to <laughs> Seattle and I visited the first Starbucks. <laughs> and I had a pumpkin spice latte there. <laughs> um, that was great. Um, and we didn't even talk about this we beforehand. We didn't. That was amazing. <laughs> I'm so shocked that you segued so effortlessly. Uh, and so I was at the Geological Society of America conference, and it was really well attended. I heard a couple of estimates of five to 6,000 geologists were there this year. So that was... Uh, that's quite a few geologists. That's, that's a lot of flannel. Yeah. <laughs> That's also funny that you say that because um, we were planning to go to this women in geology get together, just a happy hour. And I had my daughter dressed in a little pink and gray flannel onesie <laughs> specifically <laughs> for that occasion. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's first conference I've taken the whole family to. So that was uh, interesting and very hectic. But I think everybody had fun. So, Good. Yeah. And uh, I was pretty busy because I had a talk, my student had a talk, and I also chaired a session. So it was a very hectic four days. <laughs> yeah. And I know that uh, you had to bump out a little bit early, but you also got to uh, run into a few listeners while you were there. I know. I was so sad that somebody apparently spotted me, which scares me that I was that, you know, obvious trying to traipse through these talks, I guess. Um, and I, I wish they would have said something, but yeah, it was it was pretty tight in the back and uh, I had a baby carriage with me. So that was, you know, I was trying to sneak in without bothering anybody to these talks that I wanted to see. <laughs> so next time there will be definitely beers, but the beer, the beering was not as uh, strong at this conference as usual. Right. <laughs> so I guess the next conference that... Uh one of us will be at, you're not going to AGU this year, right? I'm not going to AGU, even yeah. though it is in New Orleans. It's pretty close by, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to skip it this year. So unfortunately. And I am as well. So it will be uh, AMS in January in Austin. All right. I hear that's a pretty good one. Yeah. So if any listeners are there, we will definitely try to set something up. Uh, but I was actually in San Francisco where AGU normally is. <laughs> conference season without the conference exactly it was weird the sidewalks were not as crowded and <laughs> there weren't name tags and guys with glasses walking around everywhere and poster tubes and poster you could tubes. go into any restaurant <laughs> uh, wow yeah, i can't so, even imagine that part of it <laughs> yeah, that was strange uh -huh. and it was uh it was nice to go back and visit just get to go around do some of the stuff in the city that 
don't get to do when we're there for the conference. <laughs> I know. So um, <laughs> my friend Stacy and I were talking about this, and she's a geologist at the Oklahoma Geological Survey. And so she was there. She had a couple of posters as well. And we talked about our, you know, sense of duty. Everyone thinks we go to these conferences and these cool places, and we just, like, party all the time. And <laughs> we were talking about our super strong sense of duty. So we spent our whole time, like, neither one of us, we didn't go to the Space Needle. We didn't do anything. We were just basically at the conference or at our hotel, which was right beside the conference, which was only a couple of blocks from the first Starbucks. So that's why we did go there. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so while we were out there, we did actually go outside of San Francisco, too, in a, in a rental. And I went down to some fun places like the Computer History Museum. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> and got to see some pretty important pieces of old computing that some of them actually had direct ties to geophysics and meteorology because that is some of what drove some of the multi-processing multi-core supercomputers was these giant seismic and atmospheric models mm-hmm. well that's really exciting yeah and so we got uh, some field direct call outs there nice nice yeah so that was pretty neat uh but overall i think uh we both had pretty eventful weeks but you actually have some science to talk about from yours (laughs) well yeah um (laughs) so like i said i chaired a session i had a talk and my student had a talk so i was in a bunch um a bunch of sessions for quite a while i guess we can talk about my the session i chaired first if you'd like that was the first sort of thing that we did and it was called clear as mud (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) i didn't name it my co-chair did but it was pretty good there were a lot of uh there were a lot of takeoffs on that in our titles and so that was talking about um mud rocks and it was actually really interesting because you know shales the most abundant sedimentary rock on the surface right there's tons of shales everywhere shales are always really interesting now because we're using them they were just reservoir rocks before or source rocks before but now you know, with the invention of fracking, they're reservoir rocks. And so you hear a lot about shale plays, right? So these are the places, shales are where you used to make the oil and it would move out into some other rock and we'd get it out. But now we go directly after the oil that's in the shale. And so it's a big, big money in geology to talk about shales. Um, And for a long time, I think we just described these things as, yeah, they're black, really organic rich rocks. There they are. They're not very different, but it turns out when you start to use a bunch of different methods to analyze them, you find out they're extremely heterogeneous, even though they don't look it. Interesting. So what kind are you, chemical heterogeneity, textural, compositional? Uh, all, all of the above, really. <laughs> um, a, lot of, a lot of what was in our session, because my uh, co-chair who works at the Morrison Museum, Brian Turner, he is sort of into geochemistry of shales. So there was a lot that was geochemical in nature. Um, that was actually probably one of the, one of our invited talks was by Dr. Harry Rowe, who's at the Bureau of Economic Geology in Austin. So speaking of Texas. Um, and he talked a lot about looking at these cores, obviously, because a lot of a lot of this stuff comes from comes from core, right, that oil companies are looking at and trying to understand using stuff like XRD and using CT scans to try to look at those chemical differences with the XR scanner 
and then looking at in CT scans, trying to tie that to like pore systems or permeability systems and things like that. And he actually, <laughs> it was cool to see because he actually said, I failed at this. Like it, it didn't work. <laughs> and you don't see that very often. No, and that's really nice because if you don't present negative results, people will just keep doing it. I know, and this just kills me so much that we don't, you know, that we don't make scientists do this more, right? Because everyone thinks, oh, well, it's it's not a it's not a positive test or you don't have anything to show for it, but you do have stuff to show for it. You know, I think it's a travesty because we teach that, you know, you have to fail the scientific method to learn anything. And yet in terms of publishing, yeah. Yeah. That is a rather large disparity. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking some more about publishing relatively soon on the show's little teaser. Uh, so uh, yeah so so that was so you learned a lot about geochemistry right so but what were some of the other that. interesting things um uh, there was actually this was really cool too because we got a few talks that were tying mud deposition to paleoclimate which makes a lot of sense because right these the shale rocks are deposited in the oceans and when you're talking about paleoclimate on a large scale you know ocean changes are one of the large drivers for paleoclimate um so there was a study in new jersey where they took both onshore and just slightly offshore um pretty shallow i guess uh drill holes and they were looking at the muds there to talk about the paleo-eocene thermal maximum which was a time where we had a rapid temperature change and they were looking at mud deposition as a proxy sort of for this rapid temperature change and this was an ongoing ongoing study so they didn't have a ton of results yet but it looked like maybe there were some chemical changes in the mud in terms of like biogenic silica versus not biogenic silica and um they were looking at that. I thought that was really interesting to try to use that as a paleoclimate indicator. Hmm. So how do you differentiate those two silicas? Oh, well, that's where our old friend, the SEM, comes in, right? <laughs> so since it's all silica, right, it, it all is the same chemically, but now you have to look at the habit, right? So how is the stuff formed? Because biogenic silica is going to look a little bit different than non-biogenic silica. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's it's very tedious. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of manual inspection and yes. uh, experience. <laughs> yes, it sure is. You really need a cadre of graduate students to help you do this because that's you're getting into stuff like point counting in the, you know, in plastic rocks and that's never fun. <laughs> this sounds like a task for the machines. Ex exactly. <laughs> yes, I think that this guy would have loved to have had <laughs> had a point counting drone to do this for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was uh, that was fun. But in the session two, which was really great, um, we had Dr. Bob Backer, who is a pretty famous paleontologist, and he talked a lot about mud and its importance in. <laughs> in what kind of animals lived in certain places. So is it, again, what about the mud is controlling what lives there? <laughs> well, it, it depends on the oxygen content of things, right? And so 
you've got different animals that like different oxygen contents. And I guess I'm not a paleontologist. <laughs> I'm going to say that now. Um, I guess there's a lot of discussion about where in these systems that have water, certain things live, right? Do they need to live up near the top of the system? Do they need to live down in the mud? And so his talk, which was called Boomerang Heads and Tiger Shark Manders, employing Texas red bed amphibia to document bottom mud in the early Permian. And so he talked about these things called boomerang heads. They're these okay. weird looking, yeah. <laughs> They're these weird looking lizard things, um, probably a couple feet long. And their heads look like boomerangs. Like that's what they're a fossil. They have a hard skull that looks just like a boomerang with the eyes at the point of the boomerang. And um, they talk about these guys and they've seen these living in mud and they've seen them with their the little noses bit off, which is terrible, right? So if you imagine this boomerang head and they'll see these fossils where their little points of their noses are gone. And for a long time, you know, they tried to figure out from the, the parts of the fossil, like, you know, what kind of teeth were doing this. So what shaped teeth were doing this? How are these things getting eaten? And basically the answer was they've, been eaten by sharks huh okay yeah. uh-huh <laughs> and so they'd find these big groupings of these boomerang heads with their faces bit off which is terrible um and then they'd find shark teeth nearby right and so looking in this permian mud this is where the mud came in is that in these texas red beds which are these really fine grained muddy sediments that's where you find these uh, these boomerang head guys um, and then they'd find these sharks next to them and figured out that they were being preyed upon by by these big sharks. And the fact that these are red, bed, red beds tells us something about the oxygen levels, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, wherever the Permian was a really rough time to live in, um, there was lots of seasonal aridity. Well, we talked about this with Dr. Lynn Sorgan, who we had on here, right? And so there weren't a lot of permanent bodies of fresh water, and so it says something about the oxygen levels of the water, what these things would like to live in, how these amphibians adapted to these bottom sediments and stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. He tied to also looking at these muds and the amount of caliche, which is carbonate junk that forms there, um, and ironstone to talk about the oxygen content where these things like to live as well. Wow. It always amazes me what they can derive from looking at biogenic as well as just I, the hard physical things as well. I know. So it, this is kind of a tie-in because um, Dr. Bob, as they all call him, I was also, I had a talk in an education section talking about my native science class, um, as well as I threw in a You'd be very proud of me. I made a little QR code for our podcast that I threw up on the last slide for my education talk. Well, very nice. So hopefully we have some new listeners with us. I know. It even had our logo in the middle of the QR code. I was very proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, And I had people ask me about stickers. So sad. <laughs> Should have come prepared. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Dr. Bob also had a talk in that session, too, um, and he talked about these boomerang heads as well. And he talked about uh, Demetrodons, which are these cool Permian 
they're not actually dinosaurs, even though people call them dinosaurs, Permian animals, um, and a lot of the associations in that same area with these Demetrodons, which were also all over Oklahoma at the time. Hmm. Yeah. So he talked in there about how these Demetrodons actually were preyed upon by sharks, too. So you said this was an education session, though. Yep. <laughs> so was this a some kind of outreach component to this work? It was. So, I, you know, this reminded me because you said it's amazing what they can tell from these fossils. And it is because he has this whole story, which when he first came up with this, obviously people were like, mm, I don't know about that. But he's proved it very well that these sharks would jump out of the water to get these Demetrodons. And it has to do with that same thing. You know, he looked at these boomerang heads and you can tell what's eating them. And the same thing with these Demetrodons. You can tell by their, basically their wounds, what's eating them. Um, and so it's very impressive that she can do this. But in terms of the education section, this was a really cool. Uh, this was a sort of a co-talk. And I actually saw this a bunch. I'll come back to this. Um, with someone who is a professor at a Montessori high school in Houston. And it was like the first Montessori high school and they do work with Dr. Bob and his lab, and they take these students out for these paleontological digs, just like you would do in grad school, basically. And so they take these, like, 15-year-olds out there, and they found all this great stuff, and they're really good at the fossil prep, and this is part of their high school education. Wow. They had one of the students, so they're small classes, it's this Montessori school, right. one of the students was interested in art, and he took this, this class, you know, this was the science course, and it was really interesting, because the professor, she was a neuroscientist, and she said, but when you're the scientist in a small class, or in a small high school, you know, you do all the science, and she got caught up in all this paleontology, which she was not prepared for, but she got them associated with Dr. Bob, who was really good um, at teaching students and this one student he just liked to draw and so he would go out there and you know because you've seen it at our museums and everything the level of detail needed for these biological drawings is you know it's pretty intense right it's oh, not yeah. just sketch this fossil and his drawings she showed pictures of them were unbelievable they almost look like pictures <laughs> yeah that's awesome <laughs> yeah of these boomerang heads that were in these muddy bogs and then these demetrodons and stuff like his his work was amazing he even had a really pretty good field sketch of dr bob himself it was really funny because <laughs> um, <laughs> he's this it, you know you want to imagine a scientist he actually helped with the original jurassic park Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so he's kind of the Alan Grant, and he's got this crazy hair and this crazy beard, and he wears this cowboy hat, right? And um, he gets these students really excited about science. Um, but this student that was into art, you know, he really encouraged him. He's helped him get in touch with people about doing actual, you know, biological sketches for them. And the student's now at the Rhode Island Institute of Design. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So that was super cool. Um, and that was a unique talk in this education section. But it was also unique because, like I said, like it was co... There were two people that did the speaking for it. And I went to several talks that were like that this year. And I've never seen that before. I don't know if you have. So I actually did one hmm. a few years ago. Well, never uh, mind. <laughs> it was... 
an interesting experience, uh, <laughs> namely because we each had enough slides to fill a talk. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not good. The coordination beforehand was not as great as it could have been. So okay. it was more like a uh, stop motion movie oh. <laughs> of data. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, no, this one was pretty, it was more narrative, so it was it was pretty seamless. <laughs> well, that's really cool. I'm glad that people are doing that, and I'm really glad to see other fields getting pulled in to our professional conferences. It's about time. Uh, yes, and so, uh, you know, um, my OGS colleague and I were talking about this, too, because we wind up at these meetings going to a lot of education talks, uh, just because, obviously, we're both interested in that. Um, and there were a lot of really branching out ones like that. Um, this was a memorial section, actually, um, for a paleontologist who had just died. And he was the one who started the Indianapolis Science Museum, the Children's Museum. It's the largest in the world. I didn't know this. <laughs> and he was really instrumental in bringing a big dinosaur experience to this children's museum. And it's really cool that the curator was the one who gave sort of the, the first talk of the session and he showed pictures and I've never, I've never heard of the Indianapolis children's museum. Hadn't ever thought about going, but now I definitely want to go. There's like a full size Apatosaurus outside peering into the windows. <laughs> yeah. And he said, this was really great. He said they started off with this, you know, round room that they were going to make into like an IMAX movie theater that a bunch of, a bunch of different science museums have, right? And he said that kind of went, nah, it didn't go over very well. And so they turned that whole dome into this dinosaur experience. And then the sculptor come in and they've got these theropods breaking out of the side of the dome and they're these big bronze sculptures. <laughs> it's super, super amazing. So, so my talk about native science was in that session. And it was, even though I didn't know, you know, the man who passed away, it was really cool to be a part of, that education section because there was that group talk. There was also people there from UNAVCO who I'll let you explain what UNAVCO is, <laughs> who <laughs> talked about their outreach, which was super cool. So UNAVCO is, they're actually sort of like what we do at Unidata for geoscience. Uh, they are a university governed and funded group of people that do what they can to help researchers do their work. And they mainly focus on using geodetics. So deploying GPS stations, uh, interpreting them, providing equipment, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and so there was a talk in this session by the guy that's in charge of UNAVCO outreach. And Basically, it was really cool. I'd also never seen this. He brought an isostasy demo with him, and he had he had shills in the audience that got up to help him with it. But it wound up where most of the people attending the session, I mean, there's probably 25 people in the room, were clustered up at the front of the room watching this isostasy <laughs> demo. <laughs> it was super great. It had to do with jello and, you know, that weird non-Newtonian fluid thing you can make with glue. Um because Ooblick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff. Like you said, they're mostly worried about GPS stuff and so they talked about isostatic rebound as these glaciers start melting and how they can track that with GPS. Um and the coolest thing was he said that they set up a booth at the local 
farmer's market. Really? Yes. And he shows this picture and he, it's their big UNAVCO tent, you know, and they've got all these kids out there. And he said it was really funny because these people are all walking by trying to buy some vegetables. And here's this like big bowl of oobleck and all these other demos that they have. And they're like, what are you people doing here? And he said it was one of the best things that they had done because people were so curious because it was this weird tent that they weren't expecting and he said they had the best interactions at this farmer's market and i thought that was just genius that is that's a really great idea yes <laughs> so that was uh that was a really cool um result from there as well um one of the other things i wanted to touch on because this was a really cool session that we just randomly went to that was called beyond the road cut and it was virtual, local, and non-traditional <laughs> field teaching, yes, and learning experiences. And there was a lot of awesome things that people are using, including our uh, old friends from flyover country. People are using flyover country to make field trips. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> That's so what I So real field trips or virtual? Virtual field trips. Okay. But I think the point is that you can go out and use it as a tool on a real field trip too. So that's sort of, you can take students who are able to go out, out in the field and do that. And you can also have, you know, your non-traditional students or students that, um, underrepresented populations, people that can't get out in the field can use the flyover country app to sort of follow along as well. Hmm. Yeah, and they that's were, really cool. They, it was really cool, and they're having students also build these to teach each other, which I think is really important. And that was a neat sort of flipped around theme that was in this a lot because not only did they use Flyover Country, which was super fun, but also, and I have I don't have a lot of experience with this. I don't know if you do either. Um, Esri, who does Arc Arc Map, right? right. So all this GIS stuff has this platform that you can use called story map no i haven't used this i haven't either so this was also another team talk that i thought was great and it was by these two graduate students that came up with this um and it was the their talk was called exploring field-based geoscience education by utilizing mobile geospatial applications and the esri story map platform and they were in a structure class so undergrad class, everybody's got to take, you know, usually sophomore-ish, junior year. Right. And they went and ran their whole structure field trip before without the students. <laughs> and they made this story map. And it was really cool. They also had a QR code and you could, <laughs> they put it up there. And of course, the whole rest of the time, everyone on the in the uh, talk is just looking at their phones. <laughs> <laughs> because you could follow along and she said it was really great because when you've got a whole trail of students with different abilities and you're like hey go walk this thing and find this stuff it's really hard for a student right they second guess themselves they're not sure about what they're seeing they're scared to speak up and by putting in specific stops or say hey look at this plumo structure you know here's a picture of it and then here's a picture of it where you are you know go find that right it said that they the students got a lot more out of these field trips because you know there's only one professor and they had two tas and so she said you get 50 students 
it's really hard to make sure everybody gets the same thing. But by giving them the story map, they could sort of follow along on this virtual field trip. She said it really helped out a lot. And then they went back and, you know, talked about having the students make portions of the story map for the next class. That's really cool. And, you know, it is easy to get kind of stuck at the back of the pack at one of the stops or, you know, as, as our field instructor was fond of saying in front of complicated outcrops, somebody starts saying, well, it's intuitively, intuitively obvious to the most casual observer that, yeah, exactly. and go on to explain something that sounds really cool, but you have no idea what it is in the exactly. outcrop. Exactly. And, and especially, you know, if you've got more than three people, only those top three people right up next to the rock get to truly see it, right? But if you're yeah. in the back and can pull it up on your phone... As much as I'm like, mm, no, you should actually touch the rock. Well, sometimes you just physically can't because there's too many people. And I thought that was an excellent way to, you know, get around that. Because you could probably still hear the professor talking about it, but now you can pull it up and you can see it right there. And maybe even ask questions from the back of the pack that you wouldn't have been able to before. You know, I already see something, and this would be super cool to do in podcast form. I don't know if we'll <laughs> ever be able to get it together. <laughs> Uh, but you know when you go through those museums where you put the headphones on? Yeah. And it's an audio tour? Oh, yeah. What about something like that, you know, driving through Monument Valley? Mm-hmm. As you drive through Monument Valley, you know, okay, here's a marker. You're now passing here. As you're driving through, this is the story of what used to happen here. So interestingly enough, um, I took my class to Hot Springs National Park. Right. In, in your neck of the woods. And they do have this. It's over the radio. Okay. <laughs> and so you can just tune in and you can hear a 10 minute spiel. There was four stops that I saw. There might be more than that that's actually on the tour, but four that I did. And it was super cool. Hmm. Yeah. I like this so, idea. I do too. So it would like describe. The landscape and it would talk a little bit about the geologic past you know and then talk a little bit about the cultural things especially hot springs because it's a national park in the middle of a town right. right um so there's a lot about the cultural stuff too i thought that was a really great idea and something that you could definitely link to this um and speaking of there was a talk that looked at the national parks of bermuda and they had gone to google earth and sort of made this walking tour of this as well Hmm, okay, so yeah, that's somewhere that you're probably not going to get to take a class of 50 students. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and he was just saying that uh, these virtual field guides of these national parks and nature areas of Bermuda, there just wasn't a lot. You know, yeah, you could have these placards out and things like this, but this virtual field guide could give you a lot more data, including, hey, where else in the world does this thing that you're looking at geologically happen, which I always find really interesting. You know, because so many things are very unique to that area. But if you can say, oh, look, it happens here, too. Or maybe I've seen this one over here. I think that's really cool. So this Google Earth field guide um, was pretty impressive. And I think if you can tie that to, you know, some kind of podcast, yeah, something like that, um, that would be really interesting as well so there's even things things. like the uh, the radio lab app that will only unlock and play certain audio when you're at certain sites exactly um that would be spectacular um i would love to see you know flyover country integrate that even that would be really neat so that would be uh, very cool it would be (laughs) (laughs) so these are really cool in terms of 
helping people who can't get out to some of these places engage in them as well as augmenting the students who are out there. So it was a really neat sort of combining those two things. Um, there are also some talks that were talking about using earth caches, which are, you know, a geocache except for it's like a location, right? So using right. these earth caches as educational and outreach tools, which obviously that's kind of what they were made for. So that was really neat. Um, but it was a really dynamic session. There were a lot of people that were really excited about this stuff. And there was a lot of talking during the breaks between the different groups about, oh, I can take this piece and use this. And I thought they were all really good ideas. And with just a little bit of investment, I think it's something that a lot of universities should probably start doing. Well, awesome. It sounds like it was a uh, a worthwhile trip for sure. Oh, yeah, it really was. And like, like I said, you know, it's always great to go to these really in-depth science talks, you know, like the session that my student was in. Um, but I get really excited about these educational and outreach talks because they just seem so fun. Well, I mean, we, we are involved in education and outreach. Are we? Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, I never see any podcast talks, so hopefully we will get some uh, some more listeners from my brilliantly made QR code. <laughs> <laughs> so, and if yeah. you do want stickers... It's okay. You can send us an email. Yeah, yeah, We will drop you some stickers in the mail. Yeah, you can. (laughs) Yes. So, (laughs) well, I think that we should probably go ahead and move on to uh, everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Uh, This one's pretty good. Yeah. So I actually saw this in a blog post from, I think it was one of the Fluid Dynamics blogs, and went back and dug up the originating paper here, which is open access, so you can go download the full PDF for free. It is called Unveiling CO2 Heterogeneous Freezing Plumes During Champagne Cork Popping. <laughs> oh, uh, so Liger Belair et al. just wanted to basically take high-speed camera photos of all these champagne corks popping. And I'm just saying, they had to do something with that champagne when it was uncorked, right? <laughs> you know, it would be a rough exper- part of the experiment, uh, and it was not detailed in the methods. It was not. I looked for it. <laughs> I did as well. Uh, <laughs> but this turned out to be a really interesting paper in one of my favorite areas, which is fluid dynamics. And though it sounds totally frivolous. I've got some industrial applications for us. Oh, beautiful. I knew you could bring this together. (laughs) Um, So these researchers took these clear bottles of champagne and they stored them at different temperatures, 6, 12, and 20 degrees Celsius. And then they basically popped the cork and filmed them through high-speed cameras, one of John's favorite things, right? Yes. Um, And so what they wanted to look at was this plume that usually comes out. If you've ever popped a bottle of champagne, you know, you know, you get this popping sound and then this plume of stuff that's coming out. Um, And they use these clear bottles because they wanted to look at that plume both outside the bottle and within the neck of the bottle. And this is a really big temperature dependence about what these plumes are both made of and what they look like. It does. And so 
First of all, they say in the introduction that it's obviously much safer to slowly bleed the pressure <laughs> off of a bottle of champagne instead um, of pop the cork. Uh, <laughs> I will say that you can do some horrible things to popcorn ceilings mm-hmm. with champagne corks. But they show that at the cooler temperatures, you get a white gray plume that yep. is only outside of the bottle but as you transition to the higher storage temperature, you actually get this weird blue plume that starts way down in the neck of the bottle and then shoots out. Yeah. Uh, these high-speed pictures are fantastic showing this. Um, and I, yeah, it's really weird. And so this has to do with this temperature difference, right? About how this gas comes out and expands and then subsequently freezes and does some weird stuff at high temperature. Right, and it goes back to, like I said, one of my favorite things other than high-speed photography, which is thermodynamics. <laughs> and lasers. <laughs> no, no lasers in this no, one. No, Sorry. no, no lasers in this one. Uh, <laughs> so what happens is when you uncork the champagne bottle, the there is a massive pressure drop that occurs. So the CO2, which is basically all that's in the headspace of the champagne bottle, uh rapidly expands trying to equalize with atmospheric pressure and so do you have a guess at what the pressure of a champagne bottle is Mm, no i don't like in atmospheres what do you want me to do this in i whatever unit you want (laughs) that's scary i mean i don't i don't know what the pressure is i'm really scared to open him so yeah really really high what is the psi oh god uh well, so it's strongly, strongly temperature dependent because right. you have a very small amount of volume and a lot of gas that's dissolved mm-hmm. as well as some, you know, the PV equals NRT. Right. So uh, it turns out that if you have it a few degrees above freezing, it's at its lowest pressure, which is about four, four and a half bar. And so if you don't speak bar... <laughs> that is about 60 PSI or four and a half atmospheres. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's twice the pressure in your car tire. Yep. Now, if you bring it up to room temperature, so let's say 20 to 25 Celsius, double that. <laughs> See, this is terrifying. So, you know, you look at this graph right here and it's almost nine bars of pressure. This so, is why people die when you do these <laughs> champagne corks. <laughs> So if you get a bottle of champagne at your favorite local establishment and it's at room temperature, you just get it off the shelf, you're holding something that's pressurized to about 120 pounds per square inch. Oh, man. So this this harkens back to our, do you hit somebody in the head with a full beer bottle or an empty beer bottle? And apparently it's just at a champagne cork. That's all you need. Yeah, or, or the bottle. It would be relatively explosive. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> And so what what you get is during a very short amount of time, that drops to one atmosphere. (laughs) So (laughs) it drops by somewhere between a factor of four and eight in pressure. Oh, my goodness. And in like milliseconds. Yeah, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And in that time, it doesn't have a lot of energy exchange with the surrounding atmosphere. So that is the definition of adiabatic expansion. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And that means that the the, uh, temperature... Of the gas in the headspace drops, and it is not a small amount. Mm-mm. No, this is. A, see, I'm surprised people don't get sucked back into this. Like, 
Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> this is crazy. At the lower end of the temperature, so just above freezing, uh, where you're at your roughly four bar, the temperature of the gas drops to minus 75 Celsius. That's impressive. <laughs> What's even more impressive is as you warm up, and this is very counterintuitive, as the bottle is warmer and warmer, the gas gets colder and colder when you pop the cork because there's a larger pressure differential. Yeah, PV equals NRT, man. So <laughs> even though the ambient temperature is going up at 20 Celsius, you're talking about minus 90 Celsius for mm -hmm. the gas. <laughs> and so this has to do with why you get this weird blue instead of your normal, you know, grayish white gas cloud because the actual process of that CO2 expanding and everything at that at that temperature causes some weird ice crystal stuff to happen. Well, yeah, so if you're if you're at the lower storage temperature which is less cold when you pop the cork. Mm -hmm. What happens is you get gas rushing out. It eventually starts mixing and exchanging energy with the atmosphere outside of the bottle. And it brings the atmosphere in the stream of exiting gas below the dew point. So you get condensation of water. So you're really looking at water vapor. And these water vapor droplets are big compared to the wavelength of light that's going through. So you get a process called me scattering. Yeah, and that's not John falling apart and having to get picked up again. That's M-I-E scattering, right? Right. And so that's when you're, well, just like you said, when your particle is big compared to the wavelength. Yeah, and so that gives you this characteristic foggy, smoggy looking. Why clouds are the color they are. Yeah. Yeah. And then... If you're looking at the other end, so you're storing it warm and it's getting very cold during the process, before it even gets out of the bottle, it's cold enough that it's not water vapor, but CO2 is going directly to solid. Yeah, that's So you're awesome. making dry ice in the bottle and then shooting it out at high speed. That's awesome. And the color difference there is from a different kind of scattering because you've got a different constituent. Right, and so you've got Rayleigh scattering now. Yeah, so now you've got tiny, tiny dry ice particles nucleated on some kind of tiny condensation nuclei. And yeah, you get Rayleigh scattering, which would be similar to why the sky is blue. Right. So that's really, <laughs> that's really cool because you're using the same thing to basically create these two different size particles that scatter light in two different ways. Therefore, you're two different colors. And I, I just can't get over how counterintuitive it is that if you store the champagne <laughs> yeah. at a warmer temperature, it gets colder and you actually make dry ice. Exactly. I love it. Just the bigger temperature differential. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. That's that's really neat. It's a neat... Um, this is a neat fluid dynamics application of these principles. I mean, fluid dynamics, thermodynamics. Luckily, the thermodynamics is nothing too scary yeah mm -hmm. yeah um, not at all i mean working with this adiabatic process that's wonderful because that makes it a little bit easier yeah i mean you get to set q to zero exactly and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly you do have some interesting things to worry about in terms of what the mixing ratios are of things yes yeah uh, so when does your mixing ratio go over unity and that kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah. uh 
but overall the physics is relatively simple, but it's something that nobody had really looked in detail because everybody used the regular uh, greenish champagne bottles when they did studies, which there's an alarming number of studies on champagne corks. I love in their methods how they they're very specific about like the type of corks that they used and the type of bottles that they used and that made me wonder that exact question like how much how much study has been made out here that they have you know they make these very specific well so here's a selection of some of the literature uh we have a paper by archer and galloway called champagne cork injury to the eye (laughs) not surprising uh, Journal of Chemical Education, Pop Goes the Champagne Bottle Cork. <laughs> um, let's see. European Physics Journal of Special Topics, Effervescence in Champagne and Sparkling Wines from Grape Harvest to Bubble Rise. This is the kind of research I need to be doing. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> Journal of Food Engineering, Champagne Cork Popping Revisited Through High-Speed Infrared Imaging. Oh, uh let's see vapor pressure and adiabatic cooling from champagne uh recent advances in the science of champagne bubbles oh okay and yeah there's a significant (laughs) literature wow Mm, Uh, very interesting but it's not just about champagne it's not no (laughs) (laughs) So if you think about what other processes involve massive changes in pressure, volume, temperature, and all of these gases that have these processes happening to them exiting through different shaped holes. Okay. Does that sound like anything? What? It's a rocket engine. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes total sense. Or a jet engine. And in fact, some of the studies cited in here are about exactly this, because the process that happens when you get nucleation and condensation or actual solid particles being formed, it can damage rocket or jet engines. So when we um, sort of did this joint thing with um, the orbital mechanics, and we read, we had a little book club and we read that book, Ignite, which was all about rocket fuel. They talked about a lot of this in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will say when you said different shaped holes, I, you know, I, I have a little baby. So all I was thinking about is one of those little, <laughs> one of those little things that have all the different shaped holes you put the different, like a plus shape into <laughs> or a round shape into. And that threw me off a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No. So this is very analogous. And in fact, you could consider the the champagne bottle to be a nozzle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So uh, it's though it seems frivolous, it, it is a fun paper. Uh, <laughs> the physics is actually very serious and something that you're really concerned about when you're talking about industrial processes, even things like uh, you know steam processes. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, when I looked up the related articles, you know, I got stuff like microphysics of aerodynamic contrail formation so there you go exactly uh one of the other things that they did not talk about i would love to see some analysis on is in the high speed frames you can see the shape of the cork changing yes (laughs) i thought that was a total like side study that you could do right because they're kind of fluted at the bottom 
you know, once you've gotten it out, that's what it looks like, right? It's fluted at the bottom, but you can see, like, that bulge as it comes out kind of, like, travels up the cork. It's really weird looking. I, I have a feeling that from the time series and some image analysis, you could do some fun things like back calculate the Young's modulus. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've absolutely been done. So this would be a fun education activity, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you could even use this paper because of their very extensive treatment of the type of corks they used. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, all the figures are great. Uh, the math is laid out in a very clear way. Yeah. You don't have to know calculus to follow it. It helps, but you don't mm -hmm. have to. No, it's it's very well done. Yeah. And it's open access. So, yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are doing your own study of champagne corks, uh, wine corks beer cans there is the you know the beer can paper uh, <laughs> famous in fault mechanics uh, we would love to see your measurements and your analysis of your data as well as knowing how you disposed of the material afterwards <laughs> Uh, you can send your studies to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> well, uh, especially if I missed any of your cool talks at GSA, let us know about that too. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together we are at don'tpanicgeo. And we're always in the uh, swung.rocks chat room on the Don't Panic channel. Come join us there and uh, give us an earful or, you know, whatever else you want to talk to us about. <laughs> and until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.